This is the sound of black people rejoicing. I recorded this joy at the Second Baptist Church in Monrovia, California last month. We'll hear more from this service throughout the episode. As you can hear, we make church fun. It's full of hoots and hollers, big hats and pantsuits. It has a full-on band, a choir, and I can tell you from personal experience, way more hugs than one person can take. Sometimes the service lasts for three hours and covers everything from God to financial advice or tips on how to raise those kids. After church, you get to eat together. Sometimes you cry together. Sometimes you eat and cry. Black church is layered because black people are layered. So I thought I'd make a show about it. I'd make a show about us, because I can't get past the idea that when it comes to the quote, great racial divide or anti-racist work, we can't fix what we don't talk about. So this is Homegoings, season one, episode one. I'm Myra Flynn. And here on the show, we're going to have fearless conversations about race with artists and experts and regular folks of color all over the country. In each episode, we'll pick a theme and unpack some of the deliciously layered nuance that lives within each topic. Today, for the very first episode, it seems only right that we talk about home, which may be a place or a feeling, somewhere you've never been and always longed for, or somewhere you hope to return to one day. Or maybe it's a person you've been homesick for, or a people. So interesting when black people are in a room together Mm. in a state like Vermont, how much we need each other. Oh gosh, yes. From Vermont Public, this is Homegoings. Welcome home. I became a grandfather this past this past year. What? Yeah, my my uh, my grandchild. His name is is Jackson. If you're wondering if this is Morgan Freeman, it's not. Morgan Freeman wishes he had this voice. And uh, he's one year old, starting to walk, uh, looking real handsome. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. This is Reverend Arnold Isidore Thomas. He's the pastor of the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Jericho, Vermont. And I live in Underhill, Vermont. And I've been there since uh, 1998, so I guess that makes it about 25 years I've been in Vermont. Being a spiritual leader is in Arnold's blood. His father, Reverend Leroy Chadwick Thomas, was a minister at Mount Zion Baptist Church in Ohio. So he grew up watching him and was inspired to begin his own spiritual journey. And did he ever. Arnold has worked all over the country, from New York to Connecticut, Massachusetts to Arkansas. 
He has a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. I didn't even know that was a thing. Arnold arrived in Vermont in the late 1990s as the first Black statewide denominational leader for the United Church of Christ. He says that's akin to being a kind of bishop, though he would never call himself that. And besides his velvet voice, Arnold stands out in Vermont. I actually get the feeling he stands out everywhere. Arnold's presence is felt before it's seen. His skin is the color of the classic dark chocolate Hershey's bar. His beard is stark white. His eyes are empathetic and gentle. He's the kind of guy you trust without question. And you know, he's not really the type to open his mouth unless something real good is going to come out of it. <laughs> Woo! More on that awesome laugh later. Anyway, Arnold stayed in his role at the United Church of Christ for seven years. He welcomed the challenges that came with making the church and the state of Vermont a more accepting place. At the time, Vermont was debating legalizing civil unions for LGBT same-sex couples. And let's not forget, it was, and still is, the second whitest state in the union. He worked to create the change he wished to see until he started missing something or missing some people became rather isolated uh, in need of a wider community of multicultural folk that I wasn't finding in Vermont. So Arnold moved his work to New York City. For another seven years, he commuted back and forth from New York to Vermont because Vermont was where his home was. He then spent three years in Connecticut, and then he got this feeling, a feeling almost he couldn't control or name. I felt the urge to, to return to Vermont permanently. Arnold felt homesick. He missed Vermont. He says he missed being in a place where he felt most connected to a sense of community, where neighbors would bend over backwards to help each other out. He also missed the state itself, the smaller size of it, how the political leaders were not too far away to talk to and work with, and that though the state was small, Arnold's work to create change had a mighty impact. So he went back. Years later, here you are. Here I am. Yep. Oh, and we're so lucky to have you. It's good to be here. Yeah. The name of this show, Homegoings, is about more than going home. It's actually a little morbid. A homegoing is a funeral tradition in the Black community in which Black people believe that the loved one they've lost is going home. We're talking about the big home, where you go when you die. And in order to understand a homegoing, you have to first understand Black homesickness. Arnold gets it. He actually administers homegoings. Black people in, in this country have grown up and have been a part of the experience of adversity ever since we set foot on these shores. And homegoing, the sense of homegoing um, was one in which if we couldn't experience the, the sense of freedom and release and wholeness that that the condition of enslavement carried with it, 
then the homegoing service was an, an, an attempt to express our spiritual sensitivities. That means that when we died, we would uh, encounter, experience that sense of freedom and release that we did not have in the present life. Uh, before black people uh, embraced Christianity, uh, the home going was a, was a sense that in death we would return back to our homelands in Africa. Given our history of forced migration, I'll say it's interesting the way some black folks miss Africa in our bodies, even though we may have never been. And sometimes that homesickness feels less about missing a home and more about feeling homeless or misplaced, like you don't belong in the home you're in. When I ran the name of this show by a friend, they responded by saying a homegoing as a name? Who died? My response, who hasn't? Our community has lost a lot. In full disclosure, this is not going to be a religious show. However, when your soul as a people always feels a little bit in limbo, you can start to, as Quincy Jones once said, leave a little room for God. You start searching for things like strength or divine power, for community, for a sense of welcome and belonging, for togetherness, and even ways to express joy. Even in death, we search for joy. So yes, in this story, in our stories, spirituality makes sense. You can't really talk about Black culture without talking about God, and frankly, church because people rarely talk about God by themselves. You can't heal the homesick alone. What does religion mean to us? Well, I think for me, uh, the black church uh, specifically was a part of every aspect of life. There is an importance of, of having a black church around because that provides uh, an indication that there's a critical mass of black folk that are trying to gain a foothold within that community. and. Anyone within the black community who wanted to establish a sense of community with the rest of the community had to connect with the church. Uh, that's where you had your politicians, your judges, your, your entrepreneurs. They were all gathered. And so there was no sense of separation between church and state because the black church was the only institution uh, that was controlled by black people. It's like an extended family. And especially around homegoing time. Homegoing times. We mentioned earlier that a homegoing is a funeral, but maybe not the kind you think. It's not just a funeral or memorial service. It's a, it's a reunion of the family. And you come together and it's a time for both mourning and celebration. Why do you think we as a black culture prioritize celebration alongside our grief? That's not everybody's process. For instance, mm -hmm. going to a Catholic funeral does not feel that way. Right. The black church cannot separate itself from, from the realities of this world. Black people are, 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 have long realized that you cannot separate 
the the objective of achieving uh, justice and peace and equality on this life. You cannot completely separate it from that sense of paradise in the world be- beyond. In fact, uh, that the prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, provides the objective that our, our efforts to obtain justice must provide an opportunity for heaven to live on earth. And so there's no escape. There's no escaping the realities of this world. I am not a very religious person, but the idea that you can't escape reality sounds kind of radical, coming from a pastor who deals in intangibles daily, like faith and belief. And I can say, as someone who went to my grandmama's home going, much like the black church, reality was all that was being served at the table. She starts speaking Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Brother Terrence starts speaking Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Mother Betty, she starts speaking French. Yeah. You, you feel me? Yeah. They didn't go to school for it. They didn't learn it. But here it is. I had never seen so many adults in my life, adults who were usually pretty stoic and composed in public, begin weeping and falling, speaking in tongues, and then dancing for joy in the aisles. I barely recognized them because they were expressing all of the realities of mourning and the layered grief, rage, joy, and healing that comes with loss. It's not just one thing. In a sense, you wouldn't have even known it was a funeral, except my grandmama's body was right there in the center of the room. It was like a concert party banquet wake. I'll let Arnold explain it better. His grandmama also had a home going. She made this arrangement with the with the mortician before she died, that when she died, she would be dressed in her best, her best, her extravagant uh, apparel. And that extravagant dress, that extravagant apparel set the standard of how everyone else dressed. There was no such thing as casual dress in a funeral service, especially a funeral service of a matriarch that brought the entire family from all over the country, sometimes different parts of the world together. You dressed the best you were able. As a little kid, my grandmama Myra whom I'm named after, was the first dead body I'd ever seen. And what Arnold says here is true. She was in her favorite suit, her favorite wig. She had way too much makeup on. And Arnold says the open casket is an important factor in a homegoing service. Sometimes the open casket was there at the beginning of the service so that people who didn't have a chance to say their farewells could do so. Uh, even though her spirit had gone on to the next life, uh, the the physical presence provided an opportunity for them to at least express uh, to the to her and the wider community how how much how saddened they are uh, that that she is no longer with us or that the deceased is no longer with us. Sometimes it was closed right before the procession began. Sometimes it is kept open throughout the entire service. The third important feature of a, of a home-going service is the sermon. This part, the sermon, it's an instantly recognizable moment in black services of all kinds. You know the sermon when you hear it because for a brief time, the music stops, the wailing stops, the Bibles open, and the heads bow. Everyone becomes porous ready to reflect or receive guidance on how to heal or move forward. 
or as my mom says, how to keep on keeping on. Either the sermon or the remarks of loved ones who knew the deceased, they would provide a, a chance for individuals to reflect on uh, the joys, the challenges, the character of that individual, the humor that that individual was all about. And and just uh, allow an opportunity for people to feel that that um, that person's presence, that person's character, still lingered on in some some way within them and among them. The final part of the homegoing service Arnold mentions, well, besides the giant dinner that happens afterwards, is the singing. Singing was a crucial part of a homegoing service. And, and for me, again, my memory of, of that is such that has kind of mixed feelings because as a child, I, uh, the singing portion was an opportunity for, for people who were grieving and did not have the, uh, the chance to fully express their, their emotion out there in the secular world. The, the church, the black church, became the haven for them to fully express and, 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 and unleash whatever emotions that were being contained within them. Women in white uniforms, some, sometimes they were nurses, but they were certainly attendants who were strategically placed in the, in the congregation to, to, to respond to whatever, uh, whatever needs that the, the occasion provided. With me, again, uh, as a child, uh, it was the, what I refer to as the signal tune. Um, and the signal tune was that, uh, that song that was sung by a, a soloist with a magnificent voice. And it was during the singing of that song that, that, that members were allowed to just express whatever emotion was going on inside them, whatever feelings of loss. For me, the individual who was, who was sitting next to me, and my, my mother was in, was in the row behind me, but I was sitting in, 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 the, in the pew in front of her, um, you knew d during the sermon she had this hum, this hum of modified grief, but but you knew that this was the service in which she would eventually have that opportunity to unleash it. Well, during the signal tune that came out, she stood up and howled and cried out. And <laughs> strangely enough, the pew was not well fastened down. So when she stood up, just about everyone else had to stand up with her. But the attendants were right there, right there, and managed to pull her from the row and and direct her to a place where she can be consoled. And that's one of the unique and wonderful features, I think, about a black home-going service. People in the black church know what others are feeling, know the kind of oppression and the suppression and the, and the, and the need to just hold it all in. But there needs to be an outlet. And the church provided that that space, that that setting where 
you could be yourself without shame, without remorse, without self-consciousness. It was that place where you could truly unleash whatever was going on inside you. And that's, that's the unique features of a homegoing service, but also, also the black church that, that I miss. I miss very much. Reverend Arnold Isidore Thomas. And we're not quite done hearing from him yet. Here on the show, you can look forward to something I'm calling a deep listen at the end of each episode. Sometimes that will be in the form of art or maybe just a profound moment someone had with some music underneath. I'm hoping you'll know it when you hear it, our own signal tune. Today, Arnold prepared that third part of a homegoing service for us, the sermon. Actually, at a funeral, it's often called a eulogy, and he has a unique way of delivering one. This, this sermon is taken from a musical that I'm in the process of creating. Uh, and the sermon is about a revered member of the community. Her name is Reverend Willa May Matthews. And she, she died at, at the age of nearly 100 years old. That's right. This reverend writes musicals. Lucky us. So sit back, take a breath, and let the listen in. This is The Eulogy for Mother May from Arnold's self-written musical, Braver Angels. All praise to God, our Alpha and Omega, who provides a way out of no way and gives us cause to celebrate even in times of great heartache and loss. I am abundantly grateful for this opportunity to reflect on the life of this God-centered, divinely embodied matriarch, the Reverend Willa May Matthews. We knew her as Mother May. In the nearly hundred years she lived and flourished in the light of God's love, it seemed difficult to imagine a time when she would not be there for us. Yet even in such a time as this, her spirit moves mightily among us and enlivens our souls. I remember the first time I met her. I was a five-year-old child and my father had invited her as a guest preacher to eulogize the life of my grandmother, Everlina, many of us affectionately called Mama Lena. She introduced herself as my Aunt May, accompanied by the usual suffocating hugs and slobbery kisses a child of my age tried to avoid. Now, I had never recalled meeting her before, but my Lord, this towering titan of a woman was a presence I would never forget. You see, my dad knew he was defying the norm by inviting her to preach. Women preachers were unheard of in the churches of my childhood. But that didn't stop Mother May. She had a laser-focused vision that cared little what people thought and said, and saw only what God wanted and expected of her. 
And when she declared the word of God, heaven gave her room, and the devil dared not interfere. As I grew older and ornery, as a preacher's kid tends to do, trying to defy the, the immaculate conceptions friends and family have of us, I nonetheless secretly kept track of Mother May's whereabouts, disguising my presence at her revivals just to hear what she had to say and maybe what I needed to hear. Many of you know that toward the end of her sermons, she had a habit of breaking into song, singing something we never heard before, as though she dreamt it up on the fly. But I'm convinced heaven was simply whispering a melody she alone could hear. And she sang such a song. In such a time, I was going through dark moments of my life when I thought even God couldn't recognize me. But somehow she saw me, and in her eyes I saw the face of God. She preached appropriately from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus summoned Peter to get out of the boat and walk with him on troubled waters. Hers was a message about the importance of showing up in God's name when another feels forsaken, abandoned, and lost in life's stormy seas. She then reached out her hand to me and sang, God be with you in my hour of need When the way ahead I cannot heed When my soul is sinking and my faith's in doubt Let me walk with you upon the sea I found God that night in the face of Mother May, who reached out her hand and saved me. Many of you also know that her eyesight gradually faded toward the latter years of her life, and she refused corrective surgery, feeling she had seen all she needed of this world. But as her physical sight dulled, her spiritual insight sharpened. She could sense your presence, your mood, and your thoughts both by what you said and left unsaid. And though your presence was a blurred vision, it only made her stare more intensely at you as if she didn't need to see you to know you. I'm reminded of the Bible passage that says, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. She was, for me, the eyes and face of God, and maybe even the laughter of God. She had a laugh that extended to the length of her breath. Ha <laughs> ha! Woo! You know that. You know what I'm talking about. Especially when it came after one of her gotcha moments. I remember a conversation over the phone during which we scheduled supper at a restaurant. She said, 
I'll drive over and pick you up at seven. And I said, that's great. I'll see you, but wait a minute. You can't see. The next thing I heard over the phone was, ha <laughs> ha, We'll miss you, Mother May. We'll miss you, good and faithful servant. We'll miss your smile, your voice, and the word of God that proceeded from it. But the one thing that lingers mightily among us is your spirit pointing us to the heavenly home where you now abide. I have set my sails upon the shores where your angel beckoned me to be where my soul is singing without a trace of doubt I will walk with you upon the sea. He, I will walk with you upon the sea. so much for listening to Homegoings, a righteous space for art and race. It's been a pleasure being here with you for the very first episode. And another thank you to the Second Baptist Church in Monrovia for letting me and my family join your Sunday service. It brought back a lot of family memories for me. And lastly, a huge shout out to my Vermont public family who believes in the essential work of elevating black stories enough to give me this show. That's pretty rad. This episode was mixed, scored, and reported by me, Myra Flynn. I also composed the theme music and the music under our deep listen. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions and Jay Green. Brittany Patterson, James Stewart, and Mae Nagusky contributed to so many things on the back end of making this show, including editing. So, what'd you think? We're an open book here. If you have any thoughts on the podcast, folks you think I should talk to, or subjects you feel super passionate about us covering, write me an email at hey at homegoings.co. That's hey at homegoings.co. While you're there, you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram at wearehomegoings. See you in two weeks for another episode of Homegoings. Storytelling with soul. As always... You are welcome here. (laughs) I mean, I'm just clapping as one person, but I mean, I'm sobbing.
Hi. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.